Welcome once again into the Soccer OG. Hey, that's me, Max Bretos. This is episode 137. As always, a reminder to rate, review, download, subscribe, tell a friend. Also check out the Soccer OG on YouTube under my name, Max Bretos. Multiple videos coming out this week. We don't have a moment to catch our breath. It's impossible to do a podcast because information gets dated so quickly, as is the case this week, and I shall explain. So, uh, <laughs> special guest at the business end is Ben Jacobs of CBS Sports Golasso. CBS Sports breaking news was all over the place in the uh, transfer deadline. We're going to talk about this incredible situation with Chelsea. But things are changing. Things are fluid. Manchester City news are coming in because of the spending that they made. But we will buckle down on that and we will see if the Premier League is headed towards becoming that mythical European Super League. Coming up in stoppage time, we'll talk about the Seattle Sounders and their one and done in the FIFA Club World Cup. What does it mean and how should we approach this as American soccer fans. And then, coming up next, I'm going to roll my sleeves up a little bit on the news that did break early Monday morning. Jesse Marsh is out at Leeds United. A lot of ground to cover and a short time to get there. Eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking. The Soccer OG starts right now. up here in a moment in the business end we'll be talking to ben jacobs of cbs sports and just want to preface that recorded that on sunday night the news of jesse marsh coming down monday morning so in addition to the topics that we discussed which include a really sophisticated conversation about chelsea and how i believe there is an opportunity that we will get that mythical super league in England, we had three or four big teams, and then we had six. Now we feel like we have seven or eight, and that list is growing. We also talked about just with the finances of Chelsea. And to me, again, it's one of the most fascinating stories I've ever heard in soccer. This kind of money being spent and the risk and hopefully reward for Chelsea by getting these players in now, which you had to do in order to uh, amass this super team. And you know, we have this news with Manchester City. So clearly the money is not all real, right? It is real, but how you spend it, uh, you have to be very clever. And Todd Bowley and the consortium there certainly were. And now they're married to this. So it is a risk, but we'll talk to Ben Jacobs about that. We'll talk about the future of Christian Pulisic at Chelsea, which is not as dire as a lot of people might think. And... Uh, as in the essence, some people were saying that he had played his last game for Chelsea. We'll talk about the future for him, whether it's at Chelsea or elsewhere. And we did talk about Jesse Marsh. So it's a little dated because we were both in agreement that we thought he would stick around till the end of February. The reason being, he just coming off this market where he spent a ton of money. He brought in Weston McKinney. They had a record signing in Jorginho Ruter who uh, is a forward, a, a really good dribbler, who could play a little bit lower down as well. And these were the pieces that were given to Jesse Marsh to save the day at Leeds, you would think. And it would be hard to, to judge him after two games. So the next four games, 
at Manchester United on Wednesday. I think everyone's going to tune in for that. Like, I mean, the Premier League's insane, man. It's like there's never a dull game almost. There are. But there's always a big event of a game. Last week, it was Chelsea-Fulham. This week, it's Manchester United-Leeds. Certainly, that's more from an American perspective. But I think people will be tuning in. That's a big traditional derby game as well. Not a huge one, but certainly there is no love lost between those two. Then Sunday, those two teams meet again at Ellen Road. And then you have the two games which I would have thought, and so did Ben, would determine the fate of Jesse Marsh. At Everton, who they are tied on points, leads just above them in 17th place, so they're safe for now, but by the thinnest of margins. And then at home to Southampton, who are at the bottom of the ladder. And that's where you probably judge them after you gave them this. But, you know, Monday, I mean, we're not, I wasn't surprised. Just didn't make a whole lot of sense. Because now you have all these Jesse Marsh players. And they have the Americans, right? No other club is signing three Americans. Hopefully, one day they will. But the fact that Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, and Brendan Aronson, and Chris Armas, who is still in place, by the way, he'll be part of the the coaching group that will um, lead the club. Uh, René Matic, Cameron Toshak, and Pierre Barriou will also leave with Jesse Marsh. I saw Pierre Barriou just like a year ago at Costco. I know it's interesting, but that's really it. And he was like saying, well, we're, we're seeing what we can do. I was happy that he landed there. I feel really bad now. And hope Pierre, he's a uh, fitness guy, uh, keeps the guys in good shape. Hopefully he, he continues with some work over there. So it will be Chris Armas. And I, I think it's gonna, it will remain as part of the caretaker group with Michael Scubala and Paco Gallardo. And... By the way, I'll talk a lot more about Jesse Marsh on my YouTube program. I'm going to have a video later today. Under my name, Max Bretos, we can discuss then. So uh, I don't want to get into all the details here, uh, but I'm not surprised that this happened. On form, he probably should have been let go. Two wins in 17. Now, he helped save leads at the end of last season. But tactically, it was a hot mess, and he would beat himself he wouldn't adjust. And people get bothered by that. I would point out that a lot of coaches don't really adjust. They have a system. They run with it. And it's hard to change that on the fly. Oh, by the way, check out my uh, video currently on YouTube under uh, talking about Folar and Balogun, the star striker who may have a shot at playing for the U.S. men's national team. So we have a lot of content out there. Check it out. Go to YouTube right now if you want. You can come back here later. So on merit, he probably should have been out. Uh, the... The uh, the situation from Leeds, their comments, he's been relieved of his duties. Jesse joined a club in February 2022, instrumental in keeping the club in the Premier League on the final day. They mentioned the guys who were leaving the club. So you have that. It, I think Jesse has had this, now he's had a, a, couldn't get a full season at Leipzig, couldn't get a full season at Leeds. That's a problem. The good news is he's had this experience in these two incredible leagues. That is experience you can't take away from him. And that's valuable. So immediately you talk about Jesse and the timing's perfect, right? He could go right into the U.S. men's national team. They have an opening. Well, I would say that should be way down your list just because the timing is right. But I'm sure U.S. soccer will kick the tires on that. But remember what we heard from Cindy Parlo-Cone, that they are not going to announce a new sporting director until... June. 
And they're going to have a sporting director before they have a coach. So there's no rush here. And nor should USA rush into it. And nor should Jesse Marsh rush into it. Uh, I think he'd be a very good candidate for that. But by no means do you just give it to him. So you have that at play. And then you also have what happens with these American players. What does it mean for them? Uh, This past game, they lost to Nottingham Forest, a frustrating game, which they probably should have got something out of. Good first half, denied by Kaylor Navis. I thought they were really poor in the second half. But Brendan Aronson has been moved to the bench by Jesse, not the new coach. And they're going to be looking for new coaches here. And Doni Iraola has been mentioned. Uh, He's at Rayo Vallecano. Carlos Coberan, who is at West Brom, who coaches Daryl DK, another American in the EFL championship mentioned. I think someone will be appointed here. And by the way, Sean Deitch takes over at Everton and beats Arsenal. Don't tell me for a reason. Uh, Don't tell me for a moment that that wasn't a reason that Leeds said, let's get the change. We'll get the new manager bump and we'll get some points out of this. I wouldn't be surprised if they beat Man United on Wednesday. No Casemiro. Why not? What does it mean for these players? Tyler Adams isn't going anywhere, but Brendan Aronson's moved to the bench. And they have a lot of good players now. We mentioned Ruter. He could be in those positions. Uh, uh, Nonto and Sinistera were the wide players behind Patrick Bamford. Patrick Bamford, yay. And then Weston McKinney, who to me looked a little heavy, for lack of a better word. And he came off the bench and it'll get better. It's just a small sample size. But I think it's going to take a time for Weston McKinney. I don't think he's going to be thrown into that starting position yet. So really, you're down to Tyler Adams on that Wednesday game, is my guess. He'll be the only starter there. And I hope all three are part of a revival. They're going to have to be because Leeds, despite adding some players, aren't the deepest squad. So there you have it. We'll talk much more. Go to YouTube. We'll have a video later. Uh, Again, U.S. soccer. Uh, you You can't sleep on U.S. soccer news. It's always happening. And here is the latest example of it. Jesse Marsh out at Leeds United. We're all invested in this, and we hope it ends well for the American players. And in some way, shape, or form with Chris Armas, we'll we'll see when a new manager is appointed. And I think they'll be probably looking to do that before season's end, unless it goes well. Soccer OG, check out Stoppage Time. We'll have a little discussion about the FIFA Club World Cup. Not not the day for Major League Soccer. Ali knocking out the Sounders. But coming up next, it's the business end. Ben Jacobs of CBS Sports joins me. We will talk about the incredible market for Chelsea and isn't Super League coming to the Premier League, whether you like it or not. back here now in the business end it is my pleasure to welcome in and i love doing this we're and i don't want to sound too cliche but across the pond ben jacobs who we all know works for he's a sports broadcaster uh specializing with cbs sports golasso and uh you'll you'll hear him in so many other places like talk sport and sirius xm and now you see him or hear him on the soccer og ben thanks for joining me bright and early from uh, the united kingdom yeah, absolutely. I don't know where to say. Good morning, good evening. Time zones are always confusing, but it's great to be here. It's bizarre. I mean, this sport that we cover is it it it, it blurs these lines of time zones and regions and hemispheres, and uh, I get all cozy because uh, 
you know, you, you were probably covering, you were probably in a, a stadium recently and you could see a Premier League game and I'm here in Los Angeles and we're watching it. I, these games start off at like six in the morning for me. So it's, it, sometimes I don't wake up, I'll watch them a little bit delayed, but uh, we're always so connected. We're always so connected with all of this. And uh, it's become, I mean, this league is becoming bigger and bigger and uh, people are interested in, I mean, I don't even I know where I want to start, but I, I I wanted to talk to you specifically about Chelsea, which to me is you just finished the transfer deadline. By the way, how are you feeling that did you come off the boil a little bit because it was as a transfer deadline goes? How intense was that? I just think transfer deadline day normally is intense, but the January window is so short and we're used to that month being quite quiet for transfers. And Chelsea just decided to treat January like a summer window. And as a consequence, not only did we see a flurry of activity, but we were treated to or stressed out by, depending on what way you look at it, by 24 hours of movement that impacted a variety of clubs. And ultimately, Chelsea got their top target, Enzo Fernandez, and they pushed that one down to the wire. But it wasn't only that deal. We had Hakim Ziyech, who ended up sitting in the PSG offices and not going to PSG because the paperwork wasn't filed on time. And in addition to that, I think that Chelsea will look at not just the final day, but the entire window. And if you support Chelsea, if you're excited by their signings, then you see ambition and investment and shaking up the market. And if you're on the other side of the coin, if you're on the other side of London, if you're another football fan, you go, wow, what have they done? Is that too risk reward? Is the gung-ho nature of the spending going to lead to disaster? And this is what's so intriguing, especially mid-season, about all of Chelsea's movement through the January window. And that final day was just very dramatic because they went from not getting Enzo Fernandez to getting him to thinking like the deal was 100% over the line to then getting a little bit of friction to going back into the negotiating room to getting him again. And this time thinking, well, now there's no time left. So we don't just need a verbal agreement. We need all the paperwork done to finally unveiling him. And I think the only disappointment certainly from Chelsea fans is after all of that, it was teed up for this debut, this era-changing game post-window <laughs> that would somehow lead towards positivity, a turn in form, and goals. And no. yet it ended nil <laughs> against Fulham. It's, Chelsea fans cannot be disappointed. Other than that result, they have to be thrilled. I know, I, I imagine there is some, um, there's some intrepidation, if that's the right word, when you see all this money spent as a supporter where you're going, okay, this is amazing. This is my club and they're spending $600 million. But I mean, that also comes with a lot of obligations. As you said, I I, I look at this as, and I'm sure you do too. It's, it's a little bit, as we say in the U S a riverboat gambler of Todd Bowley and that consortium because of, I mean, the most fascinating part for me is the amortizing. I know I can't say that correctly of these contracts. So these guys are long-term contracts. So they're on the hook here. So as, as thrilling as it must be for the Chelsea supporters, this is, it, it has to be a little scary to go in here, knowing that if things don't go well with Mudrik and Fernandez, then it, uh, then they're kind of stuck in the, in this situation is, is, is gambling too strong of a word when you think about 
what Chelsea are doing. And I would add to, and I guess to your point as well, if you took Chelsea out of this January window, I'm not, wouldn't say it's quiet, but it would be, I mean, you would be a lot less busy uh, with all of these comings and goings. There were some teams that were active, but we saw this big gap. Uh, I had some of the numbers here. Like the Premier League spent 815 million, much, most of which was Chelsea. La Liga, which is, I guess, is considered the second biggest league, spent 25 million in pounds, I believe. So Chelsea came in hard. They knew this was their window. Everyone's had a different window. We saw Manchester United maybe use that window in the summer and City prior to that and Liverpool prior to that. But this was Chelsea's window. But how risky is what they are doing? I think that when people say Chelsea are gambling, they have an argument. But by the same token, what Chelsea have also done is changed the house rules. So therefore, are their odds of success different because they've shaken up the market? And that's really the key point in all this, that if you only add up the money, then most people will look short term and say if they don't make Champions League football, they're going to be in a squeeze and they could be stuck with some of these players because of the long-term contracts. But that's a little bit superficial in many ways because of the secondary point, which is that Chelsea have changed the market. For good or for bad, they've found loopholes, they've been bullish, they've been aggressive. And therefore, if we look at the gamble in different areas, you can make justifiable arguments. So if we start with the financial side, is it a gamble? Well, yes, if you only add up the money, but no, if you understand how that money is allocated on their books. And I think all of us have learned how to almost pronounce amortization, but also- Have understand- you had problems with that? Because I, I always I throw an extra I, I said amortize, which is incorrect, amortization. Amortization, but you're right. I think amor, and then I'm never entirely <laughs> sure how the word ends. So I, I just started it. saying- <laughs> My new thing is basically not to say the word, but to just explain it in the sense of if you pay X amount in a fee, you can on your books divide it by the contract length. And therefore your annual outlay on the books, strictly for accounting purposes, is not as high as the initial fee appears. And then on top of that, we have to remember that when, for example, people say Mudrick is over $100 million, it isn't because the guaranteed fee is about $80 million, still a massive amount of money. And then the add-ons will only be paid if Chelsea win the Premier League and or the Champions League. And obviously, if you succeed in winning either of them, then you're quite pleased if the players contributed. But I think, look, when we analyse the finances, it's very important to note that they're okay for now under financial fair play because of this amortisation. And therefore, on their books, there's less of a sweat. And even if they don't make Champions League football, you can inject equity in the short term to align your numbers, which any club can do, by the way. That's not a way of Chelsea bending the rules. Plus, we have to think about their finances in terms of their future. And therefore, when people analyse previous numbers under the Roman Abramovich era, that gives you a gauge of, for example, their operational costs their commercial income, their previous spending. But how relevant is that when it's a new ownership group with a new business model? Because if they start a multi-club model, if they bring in new commercial income, they'll need a shirt sponsor, for example, for next season. That's new money under a new business model. So their entire leeway 
is going to change financially speaking, which they believe makes it less of a gamble, but we have to wait and see. Then the other gamble is, of course, on the football side. Have they overstocked their squad? Have they got value for money? How does the high spending affect the market going forwards? And even if these players succeed, we have to make the point that buying Mudrik for over $100 million, if it's all paid, buying Enzo Fernandez for twice his market value because it was a sort of release clause or nothing style valuation, even though they paid it in installments, means when you go for Declan Rice, you get a Chelsea tax on top of whatever the actual market value is. And that's going to impact Chelsea, but potentially other clubs as well, because nobody looking at Declan Rice is going to say that he should be less, for example, than Mikhailo Mudrik. Some would even say Enzo Fernandez. I'm sure that will be West Ham's argument. Even Moises Caicedo, Arsenal bid 70 million, Chelsea bid 55 million. I'm talking in pounds now. And when you go for Declan Rice, everyone's going to say, well, hang on a minute, Moises Caicedo at 70 million pounds, Declan Rice has to be more than that. So that becomes a gamble because it inflates the market. And then the final area of gambling, if you like, is ultimately on Graham Potter and giving him time and allowing all of these signings to gel. So their counterpoint to all of that will be they're going to be patient. This season doesn't matter as much as future seasons. And over time, they see these transfer fees that they've paid as more of an investment than an expense. And the reason for that is because if your Mudrick type player comes in for a high fee, over time they grow into their value. And during that time, because of the long length of contract, they're on lower wages. And if that wage is half what a player that Mudrick could become would earn, then because of the length of contract, he's not going to get a renewal. He's not going to get his wage doubled. So therefore, in two, three seasons time, when he's still got five odd years of his contract, He'll then be playing, Chelsea argue, at Premier League peak. He'll be worth 200000 a week, but he'll only be on 100000 a week. So you're actually saving on wages, reducing your bill, and he grows into his transfer fee. But of course, if it doesn't work, then you're stuck with a massively expensive player that you're going to have to sell at some point for a loss. And therein is the risk-reward strategy. I can't believe you just rattled all that off. I mean... <laughs> This is, it's like stuck to you, like Teflon, where you know, <laughs> but I think it's incredible when you think about how these a astronomical transfer fees, but in reality, okay, our wages of these players might be below what other clubs are paying. We're going to get them at a pretty good rate because of how this, these contracts and everything are built out. Uh, it's, it, it, it's mind blowing when you think about all of that. And I also, I think I read something, and you may have touched on it there, but Chelsea probably had to do this now, correct? Because there might be some changes to FFS and or the the length of these contracts, uh, where you may not be able to do an eight year con or you may not be able to uh, spread it over eight years. So that change is coming. So really, Chelsea had to do this now, or they couldn't have had this kind of huge window. Is that That's fair to correct. say? Okay. So UEFA haven't confirmed officially, but the feeling from sources and Martin Ziegler broke this story is that by summer, for accounting purposes, you will only be able to use amortization over five years. And that's because the FIFA rules at the moment only recognize a five-year contract. But 
they have to cede to local law if you're allowed a longer contract. So Chelsea can offer this length of contract because under UK law, it's allowed and it's against the FIFA recommendation, but there is nothing stopping it because they have to allow the local UK law to supersede the FIFA guidance. And what they've never done is if you exceed five years, there's nothing stopping you using amortization over the full length of the contract. But if, for example, you're in another region and the local law will not allow an employment contract of over five years, then those clubs are at disadvantages. So UEFA have seen what Chelsea are doing. They've synced up with FIFA and they've said, OK, they can still offer a hundred year contract if they want. But the amortization, the division of the transfer fee over the contract length can only be a maximum of five years. And as a consequence, if you have Enzo Fernandez in the summer, then you've got to divide that 121 million euros by five. And now you can divide it by over uh, eight. Yep. Then there you go. And that's how it works. I, 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 I really take your hat off to the, the folks in that consortium who were able to flesh all of this out to figure out how it would work because it worked. They got all the players they wanted and they had it. They did it at this incredible price tag. And I know people who may not be as sophisticated with the knowledge as you are, Ben, and certainly I am one of them, when you, you immediately think of financial fair play and go, how is this possible? But there you are. There are means to get there. And this is truly incredible when I think about it. And I also say, because you mentioned Declan Rice and Moises Caicedo, and we obviously talked about Enzo Fernandez. It's the sexiness of these box-to-box midfielders, defensive midfielders. You know, you figured all the money was in strikers or central midfielders or maybe a star center back. And now you got these guys make worth these valuations, uh, which is you never seen it in that group. I mean, we just you rattled off four names and they're all in that hundred million. And like Declan Rice, who I, you know, I, West Ham's my club. I've already resigned to the fact and I saw one of your tweets that they are not going to be able to keep them in the summer. So mama, let your, let your children or let your babies grow up to be central midfielders <laughs> uh, because that's where the money's at right now. Uh, I would want to say this, and this might be kind of pie in the sky, but you know, I, I've followed the premier league for a long time. And just thinking about 10 years ago to where it was maybe five years ago to where it is today. And then I think about five and 10 years in the future, And I remember there was a big four and then it became a big six. And now Newcastle's kind of reaching there, uh, that level. Um, You have, uh, I mean, I I even think of like Aston Villa, who's back up and Birmingham, you know, we have the two Manchester clubs, but Birmingham doesn't really have that massive club. Maybe that's a team that could reach these levels. Nottingham Forest able to sign whatever 25 players, over the last two windows to obviously make sure that their premier league safety is in, in tow. And do you, you know, there's the world, the word super league has been tossed around and, and obviously you still have some rules to play by, but when you look at the money that's being pumped into players and I mean, I, I, you know, Lucas pocket West Ham, and they're like in 17th place. And this is a $60 million player who's, one of the best Brazilian players on the planet and Nottingham Forest signing tremendous talent from all over the world and players just rushing in here. And I, I mentioned the the, the, the the minimal amount of money that was spent in other leagues. And obviously that could change, but are we seeing that 
shift is is the Premier League becoming kind of a de facto Super League where the best players or a large percentage, maybe say 80% of the players and the best managers are going to be here. And this is going to be, I guess, for lack of a better expression, the league of record. Do you sense that that is in the, in the works? I think we're already there yeah. financially. The Premier League is a super league in the sense that it can outspend all of the other major leagues that it competes against. But we're not there if we look at brands, because globally, Real Madrid, Barcelona, still more popular than any. And certainly, if compared to some of the newer kids on the block, like a Manchester City, not entirely new, but if we historically compare that growth and brands to a Barcelona or Real Madrid, they can still be termed relatively new. And certainly Newcastle United can't be in the same category yet on the brand side. But the advantage to all of these Premier League clubs is that if they keep getting the income and have the lure through the packages they can offer and the competitive nature of the league, then over time, it's going to be very difficult for the other European leagues to catch up. And this is where we're in a really intriguing crossroads, commercially speaking, and on the football side as well. Because what we saw 20 years ago or so was the globalisation of the Premier League and players like Gianfranco Zola, Dennis Bergkamp coming in. Then after that, the Champions League became the greatest competition really on earth. Some would say, I think there's many young fans in particular that might even prefer it to a World Cup, as ridiculous as that may sound, given how crazy and entertaining and dramatic and sentimental Qatar was. But the Champions League is your club competing against Europe's best. And now what we're seeing is, yes, that Champions League is still popular, but week in, week out, these box office games, these non-guaranteed matchups where... You don't know who's going to win. You don't know what's going to happen. Full of surprises. Look only at last weekend and Everton in Sean Dyche's first game beating Arsenal, then Tottenham seeing off Manchester City. Not as big a surprise because City had a dreadful record at Spurs, but the top two losing in the Premier League. And it doesn't surprise me. And that tells you the quality of the league. And as that grows... People are going to want in, not just with the big six or the big seven, but at any club. And that's the next step that we're seeing now. And this is why I say the word crossroads, because when you just have big clubs and they're owned and developed, we've associated that historically with a monopoly. The big four, then the big six, always finishing predominantly anyway in the big six. And even if you had a bad season, you'd be seventh. But now we're looking at scenarios where Chelsea could be 10th, Liverpool could be 10th, and Brighton could be in the top six, and so could Fulham. And we've seen that with certain other teams in the last three or four seasons, your West Ham flirting at least for half a season with Champions League football. Wolves had a great start to last season and then a terrible end, and they were there. Leicester won the Premier League. And over time... The evolution could see big name owners coming into non-big six or seven clubs to get a piece of the pie. And that's the difference, because very rarely you're going to see that with a mid-table or lower half La Liga team or Bundesliga team. But in the Premier League, there is interest and ambition 
even amongst the so-called smaller clubs. And Bill Foley coming in at Bournemouth is a great example of that. And they spent well during the January transfer window too. Now, if therefore we see an increase in the value of all clubs in the Premier League, and on top of that, rich owners coming in at virtually all levels and realising, say, from the Newcastle model, that anyone's a sleeping giant. Because mm. if you've got the money, you've got a big city, you've got a fan base and you've got a stadium, then whether you are Newcastle or Manchester United or Bournemouth or Leicester, the potential is there. And this is what intrigues me the most, because what do you do in that scenario? Because the whole point of football and competition is that from a team perspective, you can go up, you can go down, you can have a great season, you can have a bad season. It's the meritocracy that we love. But if you stocked up the entire Premier League with rich owners, <laughs> they would lean themselves more towards a franchise-led model, which in turn uh -oh. would de facto create a kind of Super League. Now, I don't think we'd ever get a scenario where the Premier League determines that it's going to cut itself off from the pyramid and only be a franchise-style league like for example the nba but what you have as more rich owners come in and big four becomes big six becomes big seven if it becomes big 11 then suddenly you've got the majority of clubs that perceive themselves to be big that ultimately have more power because even though when it was a big four they had a say it was still only four within the league if it becomes 11 out of 20 then i'm really intrigued how that dynamic changes because then those clubs don't only think about the football. They don't only think about their fan bases. They don't only think about the local. They think about the global. They think about their brand. And there is a desire to protect that brand because they know that if you go down, if you're out of Europe, the business model falls to pieces. So the next step for the Premier League is really key. And the final thing I would add is that fans these days don't only follow clubs. They're very player-centric, and that's a new shift that we've seen. So therefore, if you like Mbappe and he switches clubs, if you like Ronaldo and he switches clubs, younger fans can change their loyalty. And this, again, I think is why eventually the Premier League will realise it's in their interest to work with the clubs as both football teams but also brands to keep all of the players in their league. So then if they move between clubs... Ultimately, the Premier League doesn't take a hit in the same way that La Liga did when Lionel Messi left for PSG. And that's not to say that there'll be a draft or there'll be an equality over players, because I don't think we'd ever stomach that within any kind of European soccer. But what it is to say is that if the Premier League elevates its level to the point where its wages are premium, its standard is premium, and therefore it blows, as it's done in this last transfer window, the other four major European leagues out of the water, then suddenly... Every single top player will only want to come to the Premier League because they can earn the top wages. They can have the best chance of winning trophies. Even, if, then, even if they're not in the top 10 or 11, even if they're playing it. for a 50th place team because I'm making great. We're kind of seeing that now. I think we are. But also you come to a lower Premier League team on paper and then you know that if you succeed, you'll get transferred to a higher Premier League team on paper. And I think that will be the Premier League's aim now going forwards is to protect this autonomy and in doing so ensure that it's not just the globalization it's not just the best league it's actually now the best brands the best owners and the premier league 
therefore can get the best TV money. It can start to maybe take its games, not in a competitive sense, but in a friendly way, away from just England. And we'll see that, I think, this summer with a Premier League endorsed preseason tournament in America. And as it does that, we then start using the B word, not the C word, in the sense of brand over club. And as these brands build, the other leagues have got a massive gulf to try and close if they're going to keep Oof. pace because it's only really in La Liga three clubs that are global brands. Some would even say two. Atleti, I think, are there, but not to the same degree as Barcelona and Real Madrid. You've got Bayern, really only the singular one in Germany. Everyone loves Dortmund, but I think if you walk down the street in parts of Asia or the Middle East and North Africa, you're not going to see as many. And again, PSG are the only ones in League One. So when you look at that, versus now even a Wrexham outside of the Premier League with Ryan Reynolds. There's brand recognition. There's sure face is. recognition. And with Bournemouth, Bill Foley owns all kinds of different things. He just bought a 33% stake in Lorient. And the multi-club model allows you to connect your brand. So it has a football benefit in pathways and lots of things to do with recruitment, but it also has a brand benefit where you're actually connecting teams in different leagues and various parts of the world and in doing so you're strengthening again your brand recognition and that's where the premier league clubs with that manchester city model from the city group with whatever model chelsea end up building that's where i think it's going to be very difficult for clubs in other leagues to compete i agree with you i, I it is it's truly fascinating and it's happening so quickly that you've got to keep tracks and i know the supporters there have to be thrilled because they're watching this incredible level of football with the players, but they there's a traditions there as well with this globalization. And, you know, one moment they're going to be asked, well, we're going to have uh, Premier League games, actual Premier League games played in the Far East or the United States. And that is going to maybe what we kind of saw with the idea of the Super League was a big pushback and there was protests, but it's happening so fast. And I, 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 I the supporters are in a, in, a, in a bit of a bind because they've got to be thrilled to have these these players, the best players from all over the world coming into their shores. So they're seeing them on our, their club and they're seeing them on the visiting clubs, but that comes with, with money. And we look all the, the, the streams of money, you mentioned the owners and then obviously these broadcast rights, and that's going to get bigger. If this other side of these clubs continues that uh, there's going to be some interesting conversations uh, certainly to be had uh, on the progress we're going. I'm intrigued by, I look, I, I, I'm all for the traditions, but the when the first idea of a Super League was hatched and you're saying there's nothing quite like a relegation battle, all this is great, but to tune in and see, you know, Manchester City and let's say Manchester City and Arsenal for the sake of the top two teams, and you're, you have 30 guys that were just at the World Cup on these rosters, it's pretty incredible. And, and I, I would even say, like, when you talk about the branding of some of these other clubs in Brighton, for instance, I never thought I'd see the day that they'd get offered 70 million for a player and say, no, we're keeping him. It's unbelievable. And even Benfica, the, well, Benfica, obviously from the outside, that's a, the price kept going up. They didn't want to get rid of him. At some point, they're like, okay, yeah, this, this price tag is is just so massive, but it's uh, it, it's it, it's going. Uh, that's why I bring up that idea about five years. What's it going to look like? Because I don't I don't see this slowing down anytime soon. No, I think in five years, we're going to see either a big seven established or more than a big seven. And then 
what you have is a limited amount of Champions League spots comparative to giants within your leagues. And that's what plays into the hands of Super League organisers, whether it's the rogue version that failed and is now fighting for a legal mandate in court, or if it's some kind of reform within the existing system. And I think that the latter is more likely because everyone understands that the Premier League has influence and force. And everybody also accepts now that when a big decision is made, these clubs actually, despite being rivals on the pitch, might start to group together. And as they become a majority within their league, if it was ever a big 11, for example, then it's harder for the Premier League to have control because each of these clubs have got the players everyone wants to see. And if they are collectively going to the Premier League and asking for a particular change as the majority, then suddenly the Premier League actually starts to see the clubs as a threat. And that is the wow. shift in balance. <laughs> so we've seen that a little bit, even with the big six who have a lot of influence. But if it does become a big seven, a big eight, a big nine, but there's only four Champions League spots, then those clubs are going to almost have perversely leverage because if they have got something else on the table, like a Super League, even though I don't think that that will actually develop due to a lack of a legal mandate, but we'll find out in the spring because they've got a court case under anti-competition law trying to prove that UEFA and FIFA have got a monopoly over European club competition. And if they are to get a ruling in their favour, then suddenly it changes the dynamic. But ultimately, Premier League clubs, at the level they're at, with the money that they're spending, will want a return. So in five years' time, we're going to be seeing them, I think, push within the Premier League and UEFA as well for more guarantees. So if they don't get a Super League, maybe they ask for more Champions League spots. Maybe they ultimately want a expansion of the Champions League that just allows more of them in without needing more spots under the existing system. And this is where we will see in five or 10 years whether or not UEFA and FIFA, when they start thinking about these things, define Europe's big five and still look at clubs like the two Milan teams, Napoli who are flying in Serie A, PSG and so on, plus Barcelona and Real Madrid, whether they still perceive all of them as the old school brands and they want that balance, or whether actually if the Premier League elevates to the point where it's not Europe's big five, it's Europe's big one and four hmm. others, then do you reach a scenario where the Premier League can collectively lobby for more European spots and for a better weighting of qualification in their favour? And suddenly you might have a scenario where the top 10, the top 12 in the Premier League end up playing Champions League, Europa League, Europa Conference League, because there might be six Champions League spots. There might be four Europa League spots. There might be two Conference League spots. And therefore, even if you finish in the bottom half of the Premier League, you're guaranteed European football. But the challenge also lies in the fact that if the clubs push for what they want, they gain financially and they get into Europe, but it can be a poison chalice because even if you are desperate for European football and therefore pushing for more spots, 
if you don't make the Champions League spots, you're stuck with Europa League football as a Manchester United, as an Arsenal. You don't necessarily want that. If you end up in the Conference League, it's great for pathways. It's a brilliant experience for a Bournemouth, for an Aston Villa. But even as a West Ham or a Leicester, because they've played at a more elevated level, it might be quite frustrating. It might force them to get bigger squads. It may mean that they actually have to dip further into the market. And that is ultimately the balance. And this is the paradox within the Premier League, that the more it grows over the next five years, the more power it gets, the more money it spends, the bigger squads get, the more chance there is that certain clubs, if they don't have effective and sustainable business models, will become undone. Because as we found when Leicester won the Premier League, which was an incredible fairy tale, next season they had to spend and everyone got a bonus and their wage bill went up. And then flash forwards few seasons where they almost made Champions League but didn't. And again, you still get a bonus because just because you missed out on Champions League football on the last day of two back-to-back -back seasons doesn't mean that that squad wouldn't have got paid for Europa League, wouldn't have got paid if they finished in mid-table. Last season, I think Leicester finished eighth. They'll have still have got a bonus because they're Leicester. So everything through your success ends up resulting in some spiraling costs that you can't always get off your books. And it's no surprise, therefore, that Leicester have spent less over the last two windows, because in addition to that success, they've redone their training facility, they're expanding the King Power Stadium, but they're restricted in the market. And now if they have an extreme season at the other end, where they end up going down, suddenly the club, financially speaking, can be in big, big trouble. So this is really the balance that Premier League clubs want a model in the next five years in their domestic league and in Europe that is sustainable so they can budget for a bottom line of X come what may. Whereas now for many clubs in the Premier League, they'll get a spike if they do well financially, but they can't rely on that money season on season. If Brighton qualify for Europe, they can't change their model in one season. If Newcastle reach the Champions League, they shouldn't alter their model either because if the following season they don't back it up, even with Tottenham, who are a good example this season, then you become in quite a tight bind. And this is where financial fair play comes in. This is where the wider football community needs to make sure that the Premier League doesn't appear on the up, but then have a variety of clubs that, due to keeping pace with the market, put themselves at risk of imploding over time because the success gets so high that as soon as it's pulled from under you in such a competitive league, you actually find the very existence of your club and the way your model functions is under threat. This has got to be a 12-part series of a TV show. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And we're talking about this astronomical money. And like the checks and balances, as you point out, you've got to be very leery. And, and look, the Champions League could be a bit of a parking break for the Premier League. And, I, I you know, that starts next week. And the four English teams that are there, uh, you know, I think – it could be we may not see the same dominance of English clubs as we've seen the last few editions. Obviously, Manchester Caesar, they have Leipzig. You would imagine they probably get through and Liverpool, maybe not so much. They have Real Madrid, Tottenham have Milan and then Chelsea Dorman. And you know, all eyes are on Chelsea as well because of this super club. And but we, as we saw, the, the first uh, incarnation wasn't exactly um breathtaking by any means we'll see if by next week or whenever 
the second leg is that they are on better footing. But I think that's a great opportunity to kind of level the playing field. But as you said, I, I would be stunned if there's not more English clubs in the Champions League in the years ahead because of the money being spent and all the reasons that you've rattled off there. It's uh, It really is an incredible moment in time. I, we, I know we could talk about it endlessly. I, I did want to uh, ask you, Ben, because uh, working for CBS Sports, you're in the United Kingdom, but you, you cover – um, for an American audience and going back to Chelsea, a couple American questions I want to ask you going back to Chelsea, they're going to have to jettison some players. I think they said they had 33, 34 players on their roster. And obviously here in the United States, we think about Christian Pulisic and I heard Mark Ogden on ESPN FC. And he was saying, he thinks that maybe he's played his last game with Chelsea as he's injured. And now he's looking towards maybe getting back April and May. And by that time, this Chelsea team could be really fortified and humming for all intents and purposes. But uh, a guy like Christian Pulisic, are, is the American audience have to prepare, you think, for summertime, him playing somewhere else, whether it is in the Premier League or in another of these big five leagues? Well, I think the first thing to say is Christian Pulisic probably hasn't played his last game for Chelsea because the knee injury that's kept him out is definitely progressing faster than expected. So it wouldn't remotely surprise me if Christian Pulisic ends up being back in February rather than April or May. And we have to also remember that Chelsea have had a ton of injuries. And yes, they've now brought in players in Christian Pulisic's position, but off the back of a pretty strong World Cup, he was playing before the injury for Chelsea. So there's still an opportunity there to impress Graham Potter and be involved in some capacity between now and the end of the season. But the injury was unfortunate because Pulisic didn't get on with Thomas Tuchel and under a new manager in Graham yeah, Potter playing, yeah. after a good World Cup. He's involved and therefore if he can find that international form for Chelsea and be a bit more clinical in front of goal, there's a chance that he can be a valuable member of the Chelsea squad. However, because they've brought in Mikhailo Mudrik, Noni Madreki, and Jawa Felix could well end up being a permanent move. These are versatile players, Mason Mount as well, that can play in a variety of different places and therefore it pushes Christian Pulisic further down the pecking order and Hakim Ziyech as well, who obviously Chelsea wanted to loan to PSG, but late paperwork stopped that from being the case. So with Christian Pulisic, definitely planning for a summer exit, highly likely that he leaves Chelsea and only some game time and some form consistency in particular, because the talent is not there for dispute, but he misses too many chances in front of goal. He lacks a bit of confidence and authority at times, but the energy, the dynamism, the vision is all there. So Pulisic's now got a big decision to make because he's not going to be a likely regular starter with the amount of quality they've got between now and the end of the season. Coming back from injury is tough because you've got to get up to match speed. And therefore, even if you return in February, you're still really thinking more about the months of March and April, and by that stage, it's the business end of the season, and all these new signings may have gelled, and that can impact on Pulisic as well. So I think if he wasn't injured during the January transfer window, he might already have gone. And now come summer, we have to wait and see who's in for him in the market. And if he stays in the Premier League, Newcastle United are one to watch. They would have liked a loan over the summer for Christian Pulisic, but Todd Bowley 
didn't want to do business with Newcastle, not in a loan anyway, because he perceived them to be a rival. And then if it's outside of the Premier League, Serie A as the one to watch, because I've always been told that Pulisic would quite like to go over there. And ironically, he was talking last summer to Weston McKenney about Juventus and now McKenney's gone to Leeds. So they won't be teaming up at that particular club and Juventus, due to all of the different scandals for financial malpractice, are in a lot of trouble. So it's not the most enticing or appealing club to walk into. And unless they somehow get the points overturned, which I don't even think is legally possible, by the way, even if they win the appeal, then they're not going to make Champions League football. And that appeal is going to be towards the back end of the season anyway. So this points deduction is likely to stick or get worse. And therefore, if you're thinking about Juventus, you're not moving to a Champions League club barring some kind of football or legal miracle. They'd have to win absolutely every game or they'd have to find a legal precedent to overturn a points deduction that I'm told is essentially binding at this point and they're running out of time. But Milan is another option for Pulisic in Serie A and I still think that once the dust settles on the season and clubs realise if they have or haven't got Champions League football you might find that another team, for example, a Tottenham, who are looking for a creative-minded player, or if Pulisic is prepared to drop down a little bit, a West Ham, dare I say. I, I like the sound of that. <laughs> you just never know, because Pulisic will want to play in Europe, but whether or not he'd drop down to play Europa League remains to be seen. And with Tottenham, there's no links at the moment, but we've seen Chelsea willingly do business with Arsenal for Jorginho, so I don't think there's anything that stops the clubs from necessarily thinking about that type of transfer. It's more the fact that Tottenham's priority on the creative side will more likely be a player like James Madison and therefore Pulisic becomes somebody that, one, was he to join Spurs, isn't necessarily starting. So same position as Chelsea. And two, they've got other targets in mind especially if they make Champions League football. So we're going to have to wait and see. But I think the short answer is that Pulisic is highly likely to leave Chelsea in the summer. But the good news for him is that if he can get fit in February rather than March, April, then he still does have a few months at Chelsea to try and impress. Well, that's great news. And as you said, the, the injuries have um, not subsided. There's still a concern. There's still some guys that they have to get healthy. And obviously, you know, Jao Felix coming back from suspension, but there there's always entanglements. And I think it, it what makes Chelsea so interesting. And I think everyone's going to be tuned in there to see what's going on with the new players with obviously from the American perspective of Christian Pulisic. I did want to ask you really quickly, because you mentioned Leeds, and we're, we're doing backflips here because now with Weston McKinney, as you pointed out, three American players, Chris Armas joins Jesse Marsh's staff. They had a, a very busy transfer deadline got some new players, including McKenney in there, which initially gives me the, the belief that Jesse Marsh has some leeway there. But after losing to Nottingham Forest, the natives are as restless as they have been. Uh, some chance about getting Jesse out. I mean, that was a mess. It, it, it was hard to watch that game and be overcome with comfort uh, as an American, because look, I'd, I'd, maybe you can answer this to me from an American perspective. We're thrilled about this, but we're also panicking because if Leeds get relegated, 
then a good situation goes sour really badly. And I, I, I maybe from the your perspective in the United Kingdom and how you see it, if this team did get, if this club got relegated, I mean, it, it would have to be a mark for American soccer because I think that they would look at this as a club built uh, with some, some American spirit, certainly with McKinney and Armas. That was like, you know, the, uh, the push over the top. And if things go bad and I... I don't know how much if they suffer another defeat here and two, how much more time Jesse's going to get because they're right there in those precarious situations. It's we're all hoping for the best bed, but preparing for, uh, you know, something that could just, you know, turn really badly here from the American perspective. Hoping for the best and preparing for the worst. You yes. Sound like we, in, well, listen, when everyone <laughs> signed with that club and my immediate reaction was I, I'm in full panic mode. This they can't this can't get messed up, but after this result on Sunday, it's a little nerve-wracking. I mean, you and I are torn here because ultimately, if we keep our American hats on, we want Jesse Marsh to do well. It's good, it's good for business, Ben. It is good for business, but if Leeds go down, then it probably means West Ham, your club, and Leicester, my club, don't. So therefore, if we're very selfish True. about the situation, then we should be wanting Leeds to decline because it gives West Ham and Leicester a bit of breathing space. But look, on a serious note, I think that Jesse Marsh has got a massive month of February. And even if he's given leeway with the back-to-back -back games against Manchester United, because those are so tricky, after that, the really key games for Leeds United are 18th of February away at Everton, 25th of February at home to Southampton. And of course, if Jesse Marsh doesn't get points from those games, probably a minimum of four, then after the 25th of February, I think that he will be gone. And the reason for that is because after the 25th of February, you've got a game on the 28th of February in the FA Cup, which, yes, Leeds will take seriously because they're in the fifth round of it, but still, it's not as important as the league. And then they go away at Chelsea in March and they need that Sean Dyche-style spike in form. And if Jesse can't get the points after two games against Manchester United and then Everton, Southampton, after that run of four games, I think that patience will have ultimately gone. And the beauty of Jesse Marsh is that everyone will go into the two games against Manchester United with low pessimism, but let's not forget he got an incredible result right. at Anfield. And maybe he's the kind of manager that can get that bit extra out of his lead side in a big game where they're underdogs, whereas what we've seen from Leeds United, when on paper at least they stand a better chance of getting points, is they've stumbled. And the big disappointment for Leeds all season has just been in the key games, a lack of being on the front foot and also being able to score goals. So they lost 1-0 to Nottingham Forest. They drew 0-0 to Brentford. They lost 2-1 to Aston Villa. They scored two goals against West Ham, but they didn't win the game. They drew 0-0 with Newcastle, which was a decent point, but they still didn't score in the game. So the leads that we've expected in the past under Bielsa, but even the early part of Jesse Marsh as well, has been more about being able to outscore their opponents. They beat Bournemouth 4-3. They lost 3-2 to Fulham. They won 2-1 at Anfield. They lost 5-2 to Brentford. These are all earlier in the season. And whether they win or lose in those games, 
they're scoring two plus goals. Whereas now they're struggling to score a singular goal and they're not keeping clean sheets, which is a recipe for disaster. So Jesse Marsh needs to find a way of shoring things up defensively. Weston McKenney is going to be important and that partnership with Tyler Adams. And obviously we can't judge it yet either because McKenney only came on off the bench to make his debut last time out. So if he starts with Adams and they develop a partnership, then there is still hope and an opportunity for Leeds. But I think there's four key games and Jesse Marsh needs to get something from Everton and Leeds if he loses the back-to-back games to Manchester United. And the other thing to point out, which I don't like about Leeds' chances of staying up, is just their end to the season as well. And this, again, is why they might change their manager sooner rather than later. Because once they get into, I would say, mid-April, the first thing they've got to do is play some of their rivals, which can be seen as a good thing. But that's when, if another team has a spike and are fighting for their lives, they're not easy games. They've got to play Leeds and Bournemouth. But then after that, their last four games, Manchester City shouldn't get any points on paper. Newcastle, zero points. West Ham away. Just because I'm on your podcast, I'm going to say zero points. Tottenham (laughs) at home, zero points. So I don't think Leeds are going to get any points in their last four games. And therefore, they've essentially got to get to a minimum of, I would say, 34 or 35 points to even stand a prayer by the 29th of April when they travel away at Bournemouth. And right now, I don't like their chances. And the last thing to add on this, which I do think is significant, is that Leeds United are going to be taken over by 49ers Enterprises. And that's the wild card in all of this, because we don't know what they're thinking in terms of long-term strategy. And they're minority owners at Leeds at the moment, but they've slowly increased their stake and they have an automatic option to buy the football club and will do in 2024. But there's a feeling that they'll escalate that takeover process and actually be in charge of the football club come the end of the season. And sources have always said that if Leeds go down, it won't significantly impact the transitional takeover process of 49ers enterprises. And therefore, you've effectively also got a new owner coming into Leeds United. So how that American group view Marsh now is also key. And they may say, if we're coming in at the end of the season, we'd rather deal ourselves as majority owner with the Marsh problem come May, regardless of what happens, rather than mid-season. So that's the only caveat to all of this, that if there wasn't a pending full 49ers enterprises takeover at Leeds United maybe the existing hierarchy would cut ties with Marsh. But if 49ers Enterprises say, let's just deal with this at the end of the season and let's assess if Marsh is the right person to take Leeds up, regardless of what happens, at that point, they might be a bit more hesitant. And obviously only they know those conversations that have taken place. But if you look at it at face value now, and if you speak to people around the club, it is those next four games for Jesse Marsh that are going to be really key. Back-to-back horrible games against an inform Manchester United and then followed by those two really, really vital games against relegation rivals where Leeds just have to find a way urgently of getting points because if they walk away losing to Manchester United twice and then don't get anything away at Everton, which is not easy now because of the Sean Dyche factor, then home to Southampton, I would have thought, if he's still there, will be Marsh's last game in charge, if 
he doesn't win that game. Yeah, no way he gets it to March. I think that I, I think that's a, a very fair and accurate timeline for where, what lies ahead for Jesse Marsh. And I'm going to be very nervous for that Leeds West Ham game. I, I almost don't want to watch it. It's just too much. I would almost want to concede a point for Leeds, but I know that could put West Ham in some peril. But it is what it is. Uh, ben, this has been fantastic. I, it, there's so much meat on this Premier League bone. And even from an American perspective, I'd even get into Casemiro or Jurgen Klopp. This is just, this league's amazing. I mean, I've, I've, I've followed it for so long. I've never seen it like this. So compelling from top to bottom. You're going to be very busy. And uh, hopefully we can check in with you again. But Ben Jacobs, CBS Sports, Golasso Sports. Thank you for your knowledge. I think myself and the audience got a lot smarter here over the over the last 45 minutes or so. But uh, appreciate you sharing that with us. No, absolute pleasure. And keep up the good work. I always enjoy listening to you and this podcast as well. I know you've got exciting times oh, good man. as well. <laughs> with MLS starting, so I'll be tuning into that as well. But Well, MLS starts. MLS starts the same day that leads Southampton game. So there may be some, some synergies. Oh, wow. Hopefully there's a big MLS lift for Jesse on that day. Yeah, but you can't 25th walk into a big date. You can't walk into your big MLS launch with a second screen distracting you. <laughs> You're going to have to focus. Between you and me, I've done it before, but don't let the powers that be know. <laughs> ben, appreciate you. Uh, have a great day. Have a great Monday. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again very soon. Look forward to it. All the best. Excellent. Ben Jacobs here, CBS Sports. We'll be back with stoppage time here on The Soccer OG. In closing, a few words about the Seattle Sounders and the FIFA Club World Cup. Sounders losing on a late freak goal to Al-Ali. I thought it was pronounced Al-Akli, but I'll have to check on it. A Egyptian powerhouse who made up the field there. It was Seattle, to me, were very unlucky. Had a lot of positives there. Couldn't get the goal. Remember, again, we don't want to mount up the excuses, but that's what we're doing. Still early in their preseason. Timing-wise, really couldn't be worse to play a, a game of this nature. And before we get on to some other issues here, this is a huge accomplishment. The Sounders had to get through to the, uh, the CONCACAF Champions League. Uh, victorious in... In MLS Cup playoffs in the past, they made it to the CONCACAF Champions League. And for the first time in that format, an MLS team won it. So we're talking about months, years to get through to the Club World Cup. And it comes down to this one game. It's essentially a a qualifier for the semifinals. It's like a, a quarterfinal matchup. They don't They only have, what, like seven teams in this competition. So it's not perfect. And everyone kind of rolls in at different times. So... Sounders just got there into Morocco and then Real Madrid and Flamengo. Who, by the way, if that's your final, woof, you can you can criticize the Club World Cup. But a Flamengo-Real Madrid, just like it was in past years uh, when Flamengo was there a couple of years ago. The last two years, when Palmeiras was there and the, the year that Tigres made it to a final. Was it Chelsea? I mean, it's, it's a good competition. And it's those finals are exciting. And it's in large part because of the Brazilian teams. Really, that's it. It's Brazilian teams making the making headway. So uh, we'll look forward to that if we get it. Maybe maybe Alali knocks off Real Madrid. Unlikely. So it takes so long to get there, and the Sounders were there, and we were watching along, and it it looked like a team for all those excuses I listed 
that's what was ailing them. Remember, they're coming off a really difficult season where they didn't make the playoffs. So they also know the FIFA Club World Cup is miles away from, they're miles away from returning to this competition. The soonest they will do it is 2024. So this was their shot. And the shot, it's not about winning it. The shot is winning this game and getting a shot against Real Madrid on Wednesday, which is game-changing for the Sounders and their players and game-changing for Major League Soccer as well because these kind of games don't happen. By all likelihood, Sounders might go in there and lose it 4-1 or something like that. I doubt it. I think they would have been competitive. And I think Alali will be competitive. Real Madrid missing some key players and coming off a, a shocky run, uh, a shaky run of form. So that is an opportunity missed. And, you know, I got in some arguments with people on Twitter because I was saying we should all pull for the Sounders. And then people will return and go, can you imagine being a Boca Juniors fan and pulling for River? Or can you imagine being a Chelsea fan and pulling for Arsenal, etc., etc.? And I'm like, it's not apples to apples, man. It, it w- there is a conceptual thing here. There's a perception thing here with regards to Major League Soccer. And the way they get over it is games against Real Madrid. Making it through this competition. And we're all invested in it because, as I said so many times before, Major League Soccer is in diapers. And we still need to create a history. We can't lean into our history. Arsenal and Chelsea, they're in their third century. Boca and River, similar situation. These clubs have been at it forever. They don't need a push from this competition. MLS, almost singularly in this, is looking to get a foothold. So you better believe I was pulling for the Sounders. Because what the Sounders do comes back to LAFC and the Galaxy and the Timbers and Columbus Crew. Uh, you get in the eyeballs and people now respect MLS just because the Sounders were there. And I, before I move forward on this, I want to say congratulations to them. This was a huge accomplishment. This was history. Hasn't been done before. So now we've seen an MLS team and you would think one appearance could lead to the next. And there's some good clubs, Philadelphia Union, LAFC, and they're hoping to make it back-to-back years. And they have a really good shot at it because the gap between... MLS and Liga MX clearly is is closing. So it was a great achievement for the Sounders and nothing could take it away. They did themselves proud, but man, you could only imagine a game in Real Madrid. It's important for this league. It's important for this league that, again, uh, everyone benefits from all of that. And whether you, whether you think the Club World Cup is a legit competition or not, it's a game against Real Madrid. And who knows? It's not out of the realm of possibly a couple bounces all of a sudden. Seattle's in this thing, okay? And how rare for a European team not to get through. You get a shot at that. And Al-Akhli will have a shot at that. Alas, the Sounders will not. Missed opportunity, but hats off to the Seattle Sounders for getting there and showing there's a pathway. And hopefully the job gets finished or the job gets improved in 2024. Actually, 2025 is when the Sounders can be back, so... We've got to wait a little bit for this Club World Cup. It's over in an instant. The Soccer OG podcast. Check out the entire library of podcasts. Check out the Soccer OG on YouTube under my name, Max Bretos. Videos of Folar and Balogun. Videos coming of Jesse Marsh, where we roll up our sleeves a little bit more and get more detail. Appreciate Ben Jacobs. He is a top-class dude. Was absolutely brilliant with uh, uh, jumping on early in the morning, late at night for me. 
And I hope you enjoyed that conversation as well. We'll be back with another show next week with great guests. Until that, Placido Domingo. Domingo.